Many artists sought salvation in a second job, not only in picture dealing like Rembrandt and Vermeer, but in occupations entirely at variance with their calling. Jan van Goyen dealt in real estate and tulips. Hert van der Meer owned an inn in Amsterdam. Jan Steen, a brewery in Delft and an inn in Leiden. Jan van de Kepel carried on his father's dyeing business. Jakob Roosdael was a barber-surgeon and Joost van Kruijbeek a baker. Philips Koninck owned a canal shipping company and Hobema held an appointment as a gauger of imported wine. It was not at all peculiar to Dutch artists to have a money-making job apart from their true profession. Growing competition forced late medieval German artists into a similar division of loyalty. On occasion, the guilds even thought it necessary to take measures to prevent painters from having a second occupation. Italian and French gentlemen artists of the 17th century would have regarded it as degrading to supplement their earnings by getting mixed up with trade. Nonetheless, dealing in works of art, ancient and modern, was a common practice, particularly in Rome, where so many artists had to scrape together a living, and where ancient works thrown up by the soil in a steady stream promised easy rewards. Often they eked out an existence by working hand in glove with dealers such as the notorious Englishman Jenkins, about whose shady transactions more will be said in another place. Sometimes even great artists could not resist the temptation to try their luck in occasional art deals. When he was a young man in Rome, Reynolds purchased Bernini's Neptune and Triton on speculation but he was never able to sell it in London. The group, now one of the treasures of the Victoria and Albert Museum, remained a part of his estate. Double professions are forced upon artists whenever the supply greatly exceeds the demand. This may happen either when the market is saturated with works of art or where it has not yet been sufficiently opened up. Thus, early American artists often combined several professions. James Claypool had a bookshop in Philadelphia, and Benjamin West's first teacher, William Williams, who settled down in Pennsylvania about 1750, earned his living with any kind of work that came his way. He was in turn music teacher, stucco worker, architect, and landscape gardener, Others, just like Dutch artists of the 17th and 18th centuries, had to revert to low-class jobs, such as painting fire buckets, signs, clock faces, and chests. Jobs which Italian artists, in the course of their struggle for recognition, had scorned 300 years earlier. It is certainly correct to say that the importance of the art dealer in 17th century Holland presaged the modern development. Direct communication between the artist and his patron was to a large extent interrupted, and for the first time in history, many artists continually produced in a vacuum. Although there lies a whole world between the guild-controlled and the dealer-controlled artist, the majority of artists had by no means climbed as high on the social ladder as optimistic theorists of the 15th century had expected they would. It was owing to the discrepancy between the actual and the hoped-for conditions that large numbers of the public continued to hold the profession in low esteem. Old and New Ways of Evaluating Works of Art this assessment of artists cannot be disassociated from the mode of financial compensation. The fact that artists earn money by manual labor 
put them at the bottom of the social hierarchy in antiquity. It might be argued that something of a similar stigma marked artists in later periods as long as they, like craftsmen or journeymen, received daily or weekly wages, or as long as their earnings depended on extraneous matters, such as the amount of gold and azure used, the number of figures represented, the size of the work, and the time spent on it. By and large, the medieval artist was a wage earner. In 13th century England, a skilled mason was paid about three pence a day, and, like the simple craftsman, a great architect such as Henri de Vivelle, 1320-1400, received a daily wage. An extraordinarily thorough investigation of the Church of St. Victor at Xanten has shown that the daily wages of the architects did not change very considerably between 1374 and 1519. When people began to take cognizance of the difference between craftsmen and artists, the old terms of regulating payments slowly broke down. There are clear indications to this effect in 15th century Florence. Yet, even there, much of the older system of fixing and regulating prices lived on. Filippo Lippi, for instance, received six times as much money for the crowning of the Virgin, 1441 Uffizi, than for his Barbadori altarpiece in Santo Spirito, now in the Louvre. Painted some early, some years earlier, no doubt, because the later picture, although not much larger, contains about five times as many figures. Not even in the succeeding centuries was the traditional policy entirely abandoned of paying artists according to the rules governing trades and crafts. Strangely enough, it was still customary in 17th century Holland to fix the price of a picture by calculating the number of working days it took to paint it. The daily wage fluctuated between 5 and 10 escalins. Instead of receiving cash, Artists would often exchange their own products for other goods. There was nothing degrading in this method of barter, as Dr. Antal seems to imply when he says in his book on Florentine painting and its social background that the fees paid to the artists were in general low. Often, especially in the case of monastic commissions, the payment was even made in kind. In actual fact, payments in kind do not reveal the exploitation of poor craftsmen by shrewd clerics. Such payments were an integral part of the wage system until the early 18th century. The account book kept by the once famous Bolognese painter Marcantonio Franceschini, 1648-1729, from 1684 until shortly before his death, allows us to see the practice in operation at a late date. On one occasion, for example, he received for a small painting two silver candlesticks, three bronze putti, and other goods, the whole valued at 200 lire. In 1704, he presented a painting on copper, to Genovese, who returned courtesy with a box of chocolates, which Franceschini immediately sold for 75 lire. These and other payments in kind, such as linen, silverware, furniture, jewels, silk stockings, and candied fruit, he entered into his book exactly as he did his cash earnings. Franceschini was reputed to have earned some 250,000 lire in his working life, and was considered a very rich man. Even before the end of the 15th century, emancipated Italian artists contested the traditional wage pattern. Art, they maintained, 
cannot be paid by the standards of ordinary wares. This conviction is now so firmly established that no disagreement is possible. But it needed time and patience to carry the point with patrons in public. When the subject was first raised, the argumentation was somewhat ambiguous. At the beginning of the 15th century, Cennini said in his Manual for Artists, there are some who follow the arts from poverty and necessity, but those who pursue them from love of the art and noble-mindedness are to be commended above all others. Before Cennini, Filippo Villani, in his Lives of Famous Florentines, described Giotto incorrectly as a man who was interested in fame rather than wealth. This ideology of self-illusion, initiated by Petrarch and derived from antiquity, was taken up by Ghiberti as well as Alberti. Greed, the latter informs his readers, as the enemy of artistic eminence. Again, one surmises that he had in mind mainly those who regarded art as a trade rather than a calling. Alberti further asserts that the artist's primary concern should be to acquire the renown and fame of the ancients. Similarly, Leonardo affirms that much greater glory results from the virtue of mortals than from their treasures. The medieval concept of the just price made the artist economically dependent on the patron, be it the church, the commune, or the guild, since the patron had the power to fix wages. As far as great artists of the 16th and 17th centuries were concerned, the volt face was complete, for the patron had now no choice but to accept the price quoted by the artist. In a letter of November 25th, 1620, addressed to Sir Dudley Carleton is typical, The latter says about his negotiation with Rubens, I did with all the discretion I had deal with him, Rubens, about the price, but his demands are like the laws of Medes and Persians, which may not be altered. The cruel, courteous painter would not set a less price upon it than before. The time had come when great artists could ask and would receive star fees and were capable of amassing wealth undreamed of by 14th and 15th century masters. The most tangible sign that the image of the artist had undergone a radical change, at least in the eyes of an elite. Misers and Wastrels most early biographers were greatly interested in the way artists spent their money. The reports they left abound with talk of squanderers, while niggards are rarely, and misers hardly ever mentioned. A fact which will probably cause little surprise, since artists are usually assumed to be born spendthrifts. This is an old belief. We find it like a leitmotif running through many of the Florentine novelles of the 14th and 15th centuries, and a little later north of the Alps, too. Thus, in one of the burlesque stories published in 1555 by the German Meistersinger Jörg Wickfram, the author talks about a shoemaker and his two sons, and relates how the elder, an unassuming lad, followed his father's trade, while the younger was a painter, and is, as is the way with painters, he was reckless, strange, and extravagant. He squandered his shillings before he earned his pennies, and it often happened that he pawned his tools and mortgaged her, his workshop in order to have money for his boozing. Misers. 
Nowhere in the whole literature about artists have we found a similar generalization with regard to parsimony. A thrifty, much less a miserly artist, did not fit the image of the urbane man of genius. Vasari, in the 17th century biographers, favored conformity, but conformity with the upper-class concept of gentlemanly prodigality, rather than with the bourgeois ideal of tight-fisted husbandry. When they discuss miserliness in artists, they usually associate it with some weakness of character, while a squanderer may appear as a man of blameless character. As a rule, misers in these works are depicted as insecure people, frightened of an uncertain future because they lack confidence in their own ability. Antonio Correggio, 1489, one of the great geniuses of the Renaissance, is described by Vasari as a, a person who had no self-confidence, nor did he believe that he was good at his art when he compared his shortcomings with the perfection to which he aspired. He was contented with little, and he lived like an excellent Christian. Burdened with family cares, Antonio was always anxious to save money, and in this way he became as miserly as could be. In the complete absence of any letter by or about Correggio, one has to scan the few known data of his life to check on Vasari. It seems, at least to us, that the facts do not contradict him. Correggio was about 25 year old, years old when he married a poor girl of 16, whose dowry amounted to no more than 257 ducats. She bore him four children and left him a widower after 10 years of married life. In 1523, the painter moved from his birthplace, Correggio, to Parma, where he had also worked before, and where he was to create, in the cathedral, his most famous frescoes. What little is known about the payments he received for his work indicates that his income was modest, and so were the few investments he was able to make. In 1530, he acquired a small holding for 195 scudi and 10 soldi, and three years later he bought some land at Correggio. He died when he was about 40. The story went that he had set out from Parma on foot, intending to carry the heavy weight of 60 scudi in pennies all the way to Correggio. Overcome by heat and fatigue, he drank cold water. This threw him into a violent fever from which he did not recover. It is easy to discount the story as a legend, but it is unjust to charge Vasari with deliberately spreading absurd falsehoods. Tales of Correggio's wretched life and obscure death lived on for generations. We may quote a letter purportedly written in 1580 by Annabel Caracci from Parma to his cousin Ludovico in Bologna, but now generally believed to have been Malvasio's invention. In our context, the authorship is of less importance than the local tradition echoed in the following passage. It drives me mad and I could weep when I think about the unhappiness of poor Antonio, so great a man, to be lost in the spot where he was not recognized or lifted to the stars, and there to die so miserably. This kind of tale may have been pure studio gossip, but 
the meanness of his life became proverbial, and when people wanted to tease someone, they would say, You are more stingy than Michelangelo, because he spent very little on himself, abstaining from every form of entertainment and pastime in order not to waste money on such ephemera. Although avaricious, he always dressed decently, but with a moderation which befitted a modest estate. The dread of poison was heightened by a widespread belief in witchcraft and black magic, and it was by no means only the ignorant or half-educated who took the powers of sorcery for granted. Guido Reni, 1575-1624, one of the greatest painters of the 17th century, was a victim of such superstitions. While Barocci may have had reason to believe himself poisoned, Rennie, so Malvasia informs us, lived in a world of imaginary terrors, always fearing poison and witchcraft. He never allowed women around the house. He hated to have anything to do with them, but should this prove necessary, very quickly got rid of them. He was particularly afraid of old women and avoided them, complaining that every time he went shopping or stopped to bargain, there was always one of them about. He wanted servants of the utmost simplicity, even to the verge of stupidity. Should he get presents of food from important people, which he could not send back, he would throw them away or let them lie about to be eaten by the worms. Having conceived a similar suspicion of witchcraft, when one of his slippers got lost in the house, he went into a rage, and the same happened when he found a woman's shirt among his linen. Everything had to be dipped at once into pure water and dried again. Thereafter, he wanted his Marco to do the household washing with his own hands. One day, whilst I was watching him paint, he asked me whether one could bewitch somebody's hands so that he could no longer use the brush or would perforce work badly. It happened to him sometimes that he beheld in his mind's eye, as if in a vision, the most beautiful creations, whilst the awkward and reluctant hand, rebelling against the in intellect, absolutely refused to execute them. Aware of his thought, I frankly said no, and tried in the way which my youth allowed to give him some apposite reason. He answered that in Rome, a Frenchman had taught him a secret through which one could, by touching someone's hand in a friendly fashion, give him, in a short time, an incurable disease from which he could infallibly die. He had, however, an antidote for himself. Some of the foibles of Gaspare Celio, 1571-1640, a Roman contemporary of the great Bolognese Reni, remind us in certain respects of those of the Florentine circle. Celio was a mediocre but inordinately ambitious painter, greedy for titles and honors, who managed to become president of the Accademia di San Lucia in San Luca in Rome in the face of strong opposition. During his tenure of office, he caused trouble and annoyance everywhere because, as Baglione tells us, he was haughty and did not appreciate anyone of his profession. On the contrary, he not only dared to criticize living artists with the greatest liberty, but also the most eminent amongst the masters whom we have had in our century. He had his own opinions and always considered himself superior to others. He was so eccentric that he did not want any living being to enter his house, and not only did he keep the windows closed so that one could not lean out, but he also nailed them down in order that they would not be opened. If by chance anyone knocked at the door, he was answered, though one could not see by whom, and the door was as locked and bolted as the entrance of any secret prison so that people very rarely entered his house. 
In this fashion, he kept his wife closed in for 45 years, without her getting any fresh air, except for those times when she went out to attend church functions. Cleanliness Mania Of all the various afflictions and obsessions which have beset artists during the centuries under review, cleanliness mania was a remarkably rare one. We have before us Soprani's report on Giovan Domenico Capellino and Sandrart's account of Gerard Du. The very care and wonder with which both biographers treat their subject seem to indicate the novelty of their experience. The Genoese Giovan Domenico Capellino, 1580-1651, an insignificant painter, was of a serious and retiring nature, and therefore alien. Even in his youth, to those amusements and distractions which lead young people astray, this helped him remain fresh, healthy, and lively for a long time. He was always moderate and circumspect in his talk, and wanted his pupils to be the same. His predilection for cleanliness was incredible. He did not want any of his young men to shake his coat, move chairs, or walk carelessly in the room in which he was painting, for fear that the dust might fall upon his palette. Whenever he asked for the box of brushes or any other thing lying on any small table, he would, after he had taken whatever was needed, insist that it be replaced on exactly the same spot, and within the area of dust, which peradventure might have been raised by even the lightest movement. If, through necessity, a fishmonger or grocer enter the house, he is very careful that they touch nothing, and if by any chance they should touch some object, he immediately had it cleaned in such a fashion as if it had been polluted or infected. This scrupulous cleanliness of his even went so far that he would not touch coins which he saw to be dirty or earth-stained, and even if they were, he made his young man clean them. When he left the house, whoever was in his company had to measure his steps geometrically and walk very lightly so as to not raise dust or splash mud. One day, as he was walking in a certain street, he noticed that a boy carrying a flagon of oil in his hands had passed him. This worried him so much that he returned home post-haste, took off his coat, and fearing it to be stained, never wore it again. His mother, once having fallen into the mud, he abstained for a long time from going near her, saying that he continuously smelled the odor of mud. He had already lived in the house for many years, when one day he had a slight headache and, suspecting that it might be caused by the rays of the sun being reflected from a wall near his room, he changed houses. But also the new one did not satisfy him, for the charnel house of a church, having been emptied in the vicinity, he complained all the time of a bad smell. Should I tell of all the fastidious scruples of this man, I should never be finished. Yet, with such an exaggerated and affected care for cleanliness, this painter ended dirty and neglected. Dirty because he never allowed anyone to sweep the room in which he slept, nor would he let it be entered so as to make his bed or change his sheets, which he'd himself only which he did himself only a very few times in all his life. Neglected because leading so retired a life, he did not even care for assistance when he lay dying. Alchemists and Necromancers Ever since the Middle Ages, alchemists have been blamed or praised with equal fervor according to whether they were considered fraudulent or at least misguided dabblers in secret and occult practices, or whether they were regarded as genuine explorers in the realm of natural sciences. Dante banned them into hell. Petrarch saw in alchemical studies nothing but smoke, ashes, sweat, 
vain words, deceit and shame. Rubens, according to Sandrart, declined the offer of the far-famed Master Brendal from London to enter into partnership with him so that they could grow rich together, provided Rubens gave him a house and the necessary funds. With the words, Mr. Brendlin, you arrive twenty years too late, because in the meantime I have found the true philosopher's stone in my brushes and paints. On the other side were the countless defenders of alchemy, from whom we may single out Solomon Trismosinus, a 16th century scholar credited with the once famous work Splendor Solis. He called noble alchemia the most beloved art and solace of the poor, a gift from God. Luther had other reasons to side with the alchemists. He liked the good art of alchemy, not only because she was truly the philosophy of the ancient sages and was of great use in treating metals, but item because of her allegorical and secret meanings, which are very beautiful, signifying the resurrection of the dead on the day of judgment. The champions of alchemy remained undaunted in the face of strong opposition. Cupidity and credulity, or, if one prefers, untiring Forschergeist, never ceased to stir their imagination. Neither strictures nor expostulations, neither papal decrees nor civil laws forbidding the practice, could stop the search for the philosopher's stone or the attempts at transmuting base metals into gold. Considering the enormous lure of alchemy, it is not surprising to find artists among her devotees. It is only surprising that so few seem to have succumbed to this enticing occupation. The rational Vasari was, as might be expected, repelled by the devotees of the black arts. His ideal of the well-reasoned, well-balanced artist had little room for those who deserted their vocation for the sake of a whim. He criticized Cosimo Rosselli, 1439-1507, the teacher of Piero di Cosimo and one of the Florentine painters called to Rome to decorate the Sistine Chapel, for having been so much attracted by alchemy that he spent everything he had for his passion, as do all who dabble in it. Thus he wasted his life and in his in the end was reduced from easy circumstances to the greatest poverty. Vasari's account of the fatal passion which wrecked the life and work of Parmigiano, Parmigianino, 1503-40, is flavored with the same indignation. In 1531, this great and original artist had been commissioned to paint the vaults of the Dome of the Staccata, the celebrated Renaissance church in his native Parma. But he became so deeply absorbed in alchemical experiments that he began to abandon the work, or at least to carry it on so slowly that it was evident that he took little pleasure in it. And this happened because he had begun to study alchemy and had quite deserted his art, thinking that he would become rich quicker by congealing mercury, thus racking his brain, but not without, not with imagining beautiful inventions and executing them with brushes and colors, he wasted whole days playing about with charcoal, glass bottles, and other such nonsense, which made him spend more in one day than he earned by a week's work at the church of the Staccata. Without other revenues, yet having to live somehow, he was wearing himself out little by little with his furnaces. And what was worse, the men of the company of the Staccata, perceiving that he had completely abandoned the work, and having perchance paid him more in advance than was his due, as is often done, brought a suit against him. Thereupon, thinking it better to withdraw, he fled one night with some friends to Casal Majority, and then... Having cleared his mind a little of alchemy, he painted a panel picture for the church of St. Stephen. In the end, 
having his mind still set on his alchemy, Parmigianino, like so many others, grew quite, quite crazy. He changed from a fastidious and gentle person into an almost savage and unrecognizable man with a long beard and unkempt hair. Being so reduced and having grown melancholic and eccentric, he fell a prey to a severe fever and a cruel flux, which in a few days caused him to pass to a better life. And in this way, he found relief from the torments of this world, which he never knew, but as a place full of troubles and cares. He was very naked. Buried naked, as he had directed, with a cross of cypress wood upright on his chest. Weird Hobbies A less sinister craze than the passion for the occult arts, but one also fraught with this disasters, was the devotion to what we would nowadays call hobbies. These extraneous occupations of some artists caused rather mixed feelings in their biographers, who half admired and half deplored the energy and ability spent outside their art. Characteristically, the term hobby, which originated in England in the early 19th century, does not exist in Italian. The nearest equivalent would be the words girebizzo and pazzia, literally whim and folly, an indication that, to the Italians at least, people with hobbies appear somewhat strange and ridiculous. It would seem that artists wrapped up in their work rarely needed this outlet for pent-up wishes and emotions. Cherubino Alberti, 1542-1615, was rather an, an exception, at least for his times. A respectable painter and successful engraver, he was raised to the rank of Cavaliere under Pope Clement VIII and was at one time president of the Academia di San Luca. Moreover, he was a member of an ancient family of artists and a man who had a wife and children and was comfortably off because all that... Giovan Battista Alberti, his brother, had earned, was passed on to him as his heir. Enjoying the fruits of Giovanni's labor, he lived in his house in happiness and honor. However, he fell into a melancholic humor, or so it was judged by his friends, which consisted in his wanting to construct diverse catapults, such as were used in olden times, before the introduction of artillery. In this caprice, he passed all his time, and he had so many of these weapons made that his house was full of them, and now he experimented with one, and now with another, trying out which would throw a greater or lesser weight. It was ridiculous that he should try to work catapults in times when one uses big muskets and formidable cannon. He wanted all his friends to have a try, and he himself lost the time which he could have better employed towards improving himself. Baglioni was, of course, right. Catapults were their artillery of classical antiquity. Cannon had been in use as early as the 14th century, and in Alberti's time they were most effective weapons. His anachronistic experiments, therefore, appear somewhat ludicrous. While Alberti's biographer, Giovanni Baglioni, himself a painter, had obviously no sympathy for a fellow artist who strayed from his arduous path, the learned Abate Baldinucci was more tolerant. His, curios his curiosity, rather than his wrath, was aroused by the versatile Cavaliere Paolo Guidotti, 1560-1629 who in the best Renaissance tradition was a painter, sculptor, and architect, student of mathematics, astronomy, anatomy, and law, lover of music, and writer of poems. The painter Matteo Boselli, a most trustworthy man, 
who had spent a long time in the school of Paolo Guidotti, told Baldinucci that Paolo once got it into his head that he could find a way to fly. With great cunning and much labor, he constructed some wings made of whalebone covered with feathers, which he flapped by means of springs arranged under his arms so that they would help him to raise the wings in the act of flying. After many trials, he at last put himself to the test by launching himself from a height and, aided by the wings, he carried himself for about a quarter of a mile, not flying, I think, but falling more slowly than he would have done without them. So Guidotti continued until, tired of the strenuous movement of his arms, he fell onto a roof which collapsed, and, crashing through the opening, he found himself in the room below, having suffered a broken thigh through his fall, which reduced him to a low state. Sixteenth-century critics of eccentric artists. Men like Piero di Cosimo and Pontormo had deeply troubled natures. Cope was a surly recluse. Gaspare Celio vacillated between Bragadocio and morose seclusion. Barocci seems to have been an extreme hypochondriac, tormented by pains and frightful dreams. The tenor of his letter of 1573 reflects his agony. Rennie and Piranesi, on the other hand, are in different categories altogether. The former shared the superstitions of his age to a marked degree, while the latter combined vanity with an extraordinarily unpredictable mind. Capolino and Doe were obsessed by the fetish of cleanliness. Others sacrificed their professional standing, their health, their happiness, and even their lives to such contemporary crazes as alchemy and necromancy, or to some idiotics of their own making. Kaleidoscopic picture of oddities, but do they belong to the nature of artists? Mutatis mutandis, these eccentricities, as varied and crazy as life itself, are to be found in other professional groups throughout history and at many periods. Most artists here mentioned were more or less neurotic individuals among the large mass of entirely normal artists, and although we have no definite way of proving it, hardly represented an unusually high percentage of the profession, even if many more names were added. Must we then conclude that it was a literary invention of the Renaissance to regard artists as a particularly eccentric group? This would seem to us a hasty verdict. We already have had occasion to discuss, at some length, the special position of the group of Florentine artists around and after 1500. The observations thus far made, and also those which will follow, inevitably point to the conclusion that in the late 15th century, a new type of artist emerged with distinct traits of personality. The approach of these artists to their work is characterized by furious activity alternating with creative pauses, their psychological makeup by agonized introspection, their temperament by a tendency to melancholy, and their social behavior by a craving for solitude and by eccentricities of an endless variety. But it is unnecessary to indulge in speculations, for the reality of the new type of artist is put into relief by the violence of the reaction against it. As early as the middle of the 16th century, the non-conforming artist, 
with his foibles and eccentricities, was no longer fashionable. It was felt that artists should merge unobtrusively with a social and intellectual elite. Vasari himself, to whom any form of extravagance was anathema, reports in the most glowing terms that Raphael was endowed by nature with all that humility and goodness which one sometimes meets in those who, more than others, add to their humane and gentle nature the most beautiful ornament of felicitous affability. This made him show himself sweet and agreeable to everybody and under any circumstances. It is true that up to then, the majority of artists had by nature something mad and uncouth about them. Hence, apart from their detachment from reality and their eccentricity, they displayed the dark shadow of vice rather than the brilliant clarity of those virtues which make men immortal. Raphael, by contrast, was shining most brightly with all the rarest virtues of the soul, accompanied by so much grace, learning, beauty, modesty, and excellent demeanor. And all this would have sufficed to cover even the worst vice and the greatest defect. Even before these words were written, Francisco de Holanda ascribed the following statement to Michelangelo, surely in order to give it the weight of highest authority. People spread a thousand pernicious lies about famous painters. They are strange, solitary, and unbearable, it is said, while in fact they are not different from other human beings. Only silly people believe that they are fantasticos and fantasiosos, eccentric and capricious. The most illuminating prescription of the eccentric artist comes from the pen of Giovan Battista Armenini, who was trained as a painter in Rome between 1550 and 1556. In his De Veri Precetti della Pittura of 1587, he writes, an awful habit has developed among common folk and even among the educated, to whom it seems natural that a painter of the highest distinction must show signs of some ugly and nefarious vice allied with a capricious and eccentric temperament springing from his abstruse mind. And the worst is that many ignorant artists believe themselves to be very exceptional by affecting melancholy and eccentricity. As a counter-argument, Arminini quotes examples of great and learned masters, ancient and modern, and, with reference to their immaculate life, continues, It is certain that this is the way for painters to become great and famous, and not by means of whims and oddities, as we have said. Artists are therefore well advised to keep away from the vices of madness, uncouthness, and extravagance, nor should they aim at originality by acting in a disorderly way and using nauseating language. This is the behavior of abject and depraved men, nor does it help as a pretext for the ignoramuses to cover themselves with the shield of the difficulties they encounter in becoming proficient. The example of so many excellent artists shows that it is the other way around. Genius, Madness, and Melancholy Genius and Madness of all the intricate questions concerning the nature and personality of artists, few have given rise to more consistent inquiry than that of the connection between genius and madness. First discussed in Greece almost 2,500 years ago, the problem has lost none of its peculiar attraction and urgency. Admittedly, silence prevailed during the Middle Ages, at least so far as artists were concerned. But since post-medieval times, the idea has never again been wholly abandoned that artistic talent and genius are dependent on a precariously balanced type of personality. Plato differentiated between clinical insanity 
and creative insanity. That inspired madness of which seers and poets are possessed. Later, with Hellenistic breakthrough, artists also were admitted to the circle of inspired creators. The Renaissance returned to this Hellenistic interpretation of Plato's theory of the furores, but the Renaissance concept of the divino artista, the divine artist, had a double root. It was not only derived from Plato's theory of poetical enthusiasm, but also from the medieval idea of God the Father as artist, as architect of the universe. When, as early as 1436, Alberti suggested in his treatise on painting that the artist may well consider himself, as it were, another god, an alterderos, he probably had the medieval deus artifex in mind. Whatever Alberti's source, he evidently suggested that the artist should be divorced from the rank and file of normal people. It was Marsilio Ficino, the great Florentine philosopher and commentator on Plato's dialogues, who paved the way for the diffusion of Plato's thought. Ficino summed up in his ideas and inspiration in a letter of 1457 addressed to his friend Pellegrino Ali. A few passages from this long statement may here be paraphrased. The soul, which tries to grasp through the senses as much as possible of divine beauty and harmony, is enraptured by divine frenzy. Plato calls celestial love the unutterable desire which drives us to recognize divine beauty. To see a beautiful body arouses the burning desire after divine beauty, and, therefore, those who are inspired are transported into a state of divine madness. Hereafter, the idea that the true artist, created in a state of inspired madness, is much discussed and widely accepted. We need not probe further into the pervasive influence of Plato's theory of the furores, but shall turn to another tradition according to which genius was not far removed from real madness. Seneca's often quoted dictum, Nullum magnum ingenium sine mixtura dementiae fuit. There never has been great talent without some touch of madness would seem to express this point of view. In actual fact, Seneca's further comment leaves no doubt that he referred to the platonic fire of divine inspiration rather than to insanity. But when the passage was quoted out of context, as it often was from the 17th century onwards, it suggested a different meaning. Dryden's Great wits are sure to madness near allied, and thin partitions do their bounds divide. And even Schopenhauer's genius is nearer to madness than the average intelligence, echo the misinterpreted line from Seneca. During the 19th century, clinical diagnosis confirmed the previous assumption of an alliance between genius and madness. Early in the century, Lamartine already talked of cette maladie qu'on appelle génie. By the end of the century, the idea of disease was so firmly established that a popular magazine declared evidence is not lacking to warrant the assumption that genius is a special morbid condition. Meanwhile, a school of professional psychologists represented by such men as the Frenchman Moreau, 1804-84, the Italian Lombroso, 1836-1909, and the German Mobius, 1853-1907, had correlated psychosis and artistic activity. Their findings had a considerable influence 
and 20th century psychiatrists. At the beginning of the century, Quibon maintained that megalomania is usual in artists. While Lange Ekbaum, whose encyclopedic work Genius, Insanity, and Fame enjoyed and enjoys undue popularity, concludes that most geniuses were psychopathically abnormal. Very many were also neurotics, nor do dogmatic psychoanalysts break away from the basic pattern, although the terminology has changed. Artists, we are told, are subject to Oedipus and guilt complexes, narcissism and heightened bisexuality, or are victims of their superego, as well as of frustrations and psychic traumas. Psychiatric opinion conquered large sectors of the public. A writer like Proust maintained that everything great in the world comes from neurotics. They alone have founded religions and composed our masterpieces. And Lionel Trilling regarded the supposed connection between mental illness and artistic genius as one of the characteristic notions of our culture. Although without doubt, the opinion of the majority sides with a view that artistic talent is granted to man at the expense of emotional balance, we would falsify the picture if dissenting voices were left unrecorded. We have seen in the last chapter that ever since Vasari's literary portrait of Raphael genius was also depicted as the acme of moral and intellectual perfection and equipoise. This image of genius found a spirited 19th century advocate in Charles Lamb, who, in his essay on the sanity of true genius, denied the connection between genius and madness. So far from a position holding true, that great wit has a necessary alliance with insanity. The greatest wits, on the contrary, will ever to be found in the sanest writers. It is impossible for the mind to conceive a mad Shakespeare. The greatness of wit, by which the poetic talent is here chiefly understood, manifests itself in the admirable balance of all the faculties. Madness, the disproportionate straining or excess of any of them. Charles Lamb had some following, even among medical men. C. Pellman, an early 20th century psychologist, expressed the conviction that geniuses who are insane are far outnumbered by those greater ones who show no trace of insanity. It can be stated with complete assurance that not one of the great geniuses was mentally diseased. If madness actually occurred, then the creative powers were diminished. Evidently, Pellman was here up in arms against Lombroso and his school. Not a few modern psychiatrists share Pellman's point of view. Psychosis is never productive in itself. Only man's mind can be creative, never a disease of his mind. Sums up this position which has found support in studies combining psychiatric and statistical techniques. Also, the psychoanalyst D. Schneider succeeds from the majority of psychoanalytic opinion when he writes, The lives of talented men and women famously abound in episodes of inhibition, despair, moodiness, irritability, restlessness, alternating with episodes of productivity. These disequilibria have been assumed to be intrinsic to genius. Of course, they're not specific to the artist. They exist in baseball players and truck drivers and pillars of society. 
In the two previous chapters, we have made similar observations, but by weaving the historical and psychological evidence together, we believe we have taken note of a problem which a purely psychological approach fails to acknowledge. The notion of the mad artist is a historical reality, and by brushing it aside as mistaken, one denies the existence of a generic and deeply significant symbol. The painter or writer is not unique and no more in need of personality understanding than is the greengrocer or the banker or the man in the street, all of whom have their own particular peculiar manner of dealing symbolically with psychic forces, whether they deal with money, mana, power, painting, or politics.